Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, the host of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is something a little bit extra from our usual programming. One of the side projects that I enjoy the most about the Grognard Files is the Great Library of RPGs book club that we started last year. You know, we don't really get enough time to talk to each other outside of the game in this new age of online gaming, so the book club was conceived as a space for gamers to meet and chat about gaming-adjacent topics, sometimes books, but not always. Meeting once a month on Zoom with breakout rooms to keep it cosy, we've covered everything from John Peterson's books about the hobby, the elusive shift and the more recent game wizards about the early years of TSR. We've also gone on to specific issues of White Dwarf, Imagine, Different Worlds and Avalon Hills Heroes. Also films, we watched Krull and Hawk the Slayer the world's most expensive LARP, and a graphic novel, Jodorowsky and Morbius's collaboration, The Incal. Also, at the end of the year, we got together to see Has He Been to share our collective bounty from Christmas. April's meeting in 2022 coincided with virtual grog meet, so we had an extra special meeting. We discussed the gutter prayer, the first book in the Black Iron Legacy series of dark fantasy novels. After the meeting, we arranged a Q&A session with the author, gaming's very own Gareth Hanrahan. This is his second appearance on the GrogPod. He first appeared in episode 21, talking about Knight's Black Agents. His contribution to gaming has been immense, and we talk about some of his projects in this first part of the interview. The Gutter Prayer is a novel set in the city of Gurdon and follows the story of three unlikely protagonists. Carrie, or Carillion Tay, is forced to become a thief to try and restore some of her family's former wealth. Spar is afflicted with a stone plague which is steadily calcifying his body and turning it into stone. And Rat is a corpse-eating ghoul. There are spoilers in this discussion, but I hope that it will encourage you to read it as we explore the inspirations, techniques and considerations made by Gareth when he was working on the project. I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back at the end to give a bit more information about how you can join the book club and liven up your Sunday mornings. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Okay, welcome to the Great Library of RPGs book club. We meet every uh, first Sunday of the month. Uh, it's been described by Paul Fricker as Sunday School for Geeks. And uh, this week, this month, we've been reading The Gutter Prayer by Gareth Hanrahan, a well-known uh, game writer and designer, and we're delighted that he's joined us today. Hello, Gareth. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you again. Um, we last met, I think, uh, in 2018, and a lot's, uh, a lot has happened in the world since then, hasn't it? 
Yeah, I, I miss like, you know, news being boring, like you're not waking up and doing damage control every morning. Uh, you've got a very uh, beautiful uh, Zoom background there. So uh, where, where, are you, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from the edge of Ireland, down Kerry at my in-laws place. We came down for a day two weeks ago and then all got COVID. Oh. So we spent a week uh, hiding in a bedroom. We're all pretty much recovered now. So, yeah, it, it, it is very nice and much nicer to be out, out of one small sticky bedroom with five people living in it and also be able to, like, you know, breathe. And, and you, have you moved? I, I don't ask this question because uh, it might be quite traumatic for you. So, <laughs> I it is, it. Basically, yeah, we, we, we knocked down our house just before COVID started to rebuild it. And COVID delayed that rebuilding somewhat. And it was nearly, nearly finished about six weeks ago. And we moved out of our rental place on the grounds that, like, you know, even if they were slightly delayed, we'd be in within, like, two two weeks. We'd, like, you know, stay with relatives or whatever. And then there were storms here, which took out some of the power grid. Oh. And the people who were supposed to be hooking up the power to our house were off fixing, like, you know, fallen cables and so forth. So that was, like, six weeks ago. So we've had a lot of being nomadic in the last while. But we, we finally have power. So another two, apparently, we should oh. finally be in. It, has that affected um, your work rate? Surely, surely not. I mean, how have you, have you managed to uh, keep working in th- those conditions? I, I, I am. April is going to be very, very much a catch-up month in a very <laughs> frantic way. No, no, nothing has fallen through yet, but uh, I, I am uncomfortably close certain, to certain deadlines. And, and does it does that how is that how it feels for you like a, a series of uh, deadlines deadlines because uh, I know uh, since uh, we last met you, you've produced uh, a whole load of stuff because when we last met uh, I think the Persephone extraction was about to be released uh, Night's Black Agent solo uh, was uh, about to come out and uh, since since then you've produced a load more stuff as well. I have well, I'm not I'm not quite sure what but because of like the pandemic and printing being so weird especially with like you know the rise in the price of paper i've done a load of things that actually haven't come out yet so I, i'm trying to recall like you know what i've actually done what, what i've done since then um i've handed in poison tree which was um my edits and development on the vaccine campaign done by the good friends which hi paul um what else have i done the 13th age campaign i've been working on for ages which is Approaching finished. Currently, I'm working on the Ocean Game, which is another long, long, long-running Pelgrane project. Pookie is helpfully holding up books I've written, which have apparently come out in intervening months, which is the Book of the Underworld, Book of Demons, 13th Age. And I also did with the Dragon Hall. And there's some One Ring stuff in the pipeline. And there are novels as well. I keep busy. As I mentioned, uh, the Persephone extract is part of uh, Virtual Krog Meet, which is a convention we've run this uh, weekend. I completed it last night. Uh, we started off as a one-shot last year. We got carried away and we did it over five sessions. So uh, we completed the Persephone extraction last night. You'd be pleased to know that the world was saved. Yeah, it's another adventure that became like you know oddly topical, given like you know the final parts about a, about a pandemic. Yeah, but between that and the um, the other campaign I did, uh, the Zlozny Quartet being set in like you know parts of Ukraine, that's another one that's become <laughs> alarmingly topical. And uh, one of the things that um, we were discussing this morning was uh, about your role. 
that he seemed like a somebody who is both an ideas person but also a completer finisher so somebody who comes into a project and brings it all together so so how, how would you describe yourself someone whose name i'm completely blanking on which is really annoying because a really nice person describe me as a builder and that like you know I, i'm good at building on stuff other people have done and i think that's kind of accurate that that, that i'm when I can come up with my own ideas, I'm far more comfortable sort of riffing on existing stuff and like you know adding on and expanding on things. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a it's a fair cop that I'm good at sort of bringing stuff together to finish things and taking someone else's outline and expanding on that. It helps when half the outlines are from Ken Height because you know, he does he does very good outlines. Admittedly, they tend to be rather ambitious outlines. Because he, you know, he, he knows he wanted to do them, so he like you know throws every day he can come up with and goes right car. Sort <laughs> that out. And, and how did the other projects come to you then? So um, in, in what form are they? At? So Persephone Extraction, for example, had a number of uh, authors. So um, are they commissioned separately and um, brought together? Yeah, or well, um, Persephone, that one we were coming back from Gen Con, and we had our sort of annual Pelgrim meeting in like the coffee shop of Indianapolis airport. And we said, okay, we need another Netflix agents campaign. That's like, you know, smaller and more manageable than Dracula dossier. Cause Dracula dossier had just come out and there was a lot of interest in Netflix agents. So I threw together an outline on the plane back and we found some writers and, um, fired that off. And then I did my sort of like, you know, sprinkling of fairy dust and brought it all together at the end writing the final adventure and then going through them all to edit them for consistency and to add links between them and and the uh cover for that uh, adventure sells it doesn't it it's, it's a great cover yes. micro edits doing assault on a greek monastery what, what more could you want <laughs> and um the other project uh, that I, I need to mention that is getting a lot of um consideration is uh, pirates of Drinux. Now, I've got a quote here from uh, Mr. Blythe Blythe of the Grognard Files, who described it as a work of genius. Pirates it was a very, very odd project. Um, it happened like it, it started just as I was about to leave Mongoose and sort of continued after that. And it was written in a sort of Dickensian way because I, I had the outline. And originally it was supposed to be just like you know, a sort of standard project, but then. It ended up being released in like as a sort of part work in PDF, like each venture is on separately. So normally, if I'm doing a long campaign, we'll I'll write the whole thing or like the whole thing be written, and then I'll come back and I'll like you know, edit it and add connections to the, between the various ventures and like you know, sort out that like you know, A needs to be needed to see. But with pirates, like the like the first adventure was published as it was written the second one, and then like the second one was out as it was doing the third one and so forth. So I couldn't go back and change stuff. Uh, so it was a bit of a tightrope back that, like, you know, anything I had written was now fixed canon and could not be changed even if I had a better idea later on. So I'm amazed this story came together so well. Uh, but I, I think, in retrospect, the secret sauce of that campaign isn't its, like, you know, sandbox nature or anything. It is purely having Brian Blessed as the first NPC you meet. <laughs> because, because everyone can do a, a Brian Blessed impression. If Brian Blessed tells you to do something, you're probably going to do it. But at the same time, you don't feel that Brian Blessed is this, like, you know, wise Gandalf figure who knows what's going on. You get the impression <laughs> that Brian Blessed has this vague idea. And you're, you're, okay, you're on board with this. He's shouting very loudly at you. But you also feel like, you're, okay, I'm going to take Brian Blessed's vague idea and implement it my own way. 
because the players both sort of like initial push to do something, but they feel they can do they can like interpret that however they want, like they can go out and conquer the universe in whatever way they want, as urged on by Brian Blessed, like a sort of giant bearded cheerleader. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, starting play that in uh, September. We're scheduled to start that and uh, oh, probably right. finish it in uh, 2030. So yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, it, it, it is one of those like sort of piece of string campaigns, but as long as you want to make it. I think that's what I find with uh, Persephone as well, that um, the beauty of it, being able to do it over five sessions, is that you could actually construct campaign from it, just using elements of it. Because um, that's, I suppose that's the beauty of the gumshoe format, isn't it? That you can see uh, where things connect. And Yeah, exactly. Can... The joy of gumshoe is the connection. It, 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 just, like, you know, it just strips away all the sort of fat and skin of adventure and shows you the skeleton very, very clearly. So you can see like you know, how it's how the adventure is going to walk and run, so to speak. You know, we, we're here today at the uh, book club. We've been reading the Gutter Prayer, which is the uh, first in your uh, trilogy, the uh, Black Iron. Not a trilogy. Like, it's, it's, oh, it's not, not a trilogy. trilogy. <laughs> oh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> so there, there are only three books out. I'm going to do more at some point. Oh, but right. because okay. because everyone assumes that fantasy books come in trilogies. <laughs> Lots of people assume the third book is the last one. <laughs> They're screaming, no, it's not. There will be more. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. It's a trilogy in five parts, ideally. But, uh, <laughs> like all the best oh, yeah. trilogies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was sold to the publisher as basically one book. And they said, we want, we want a second book in the series. And I went, okay. And I went, will that be it? They said, no, we, we, we might do more. So the, the third, you know, we are only doing three books or we're only going to do five books. So. I want to say, uh, I'm aiming for five. It may only be four. We shall, we shall see. But uh, it was an education in, like, you know, the assumptions of a different market. Yeah, yeah. And we have some uh, questions uh, around yeah. that, about that uh, transition. But I just wanted to uh, talk about um, how it came about and how it was conceived and uh, how did you get to the point of uh, pitching it as a, a novel? Um, There's no sort of, like, you know, single moment of inspiration. Um, I, it started out actually as, do you know, um, National, Novel Leisure, yeah, National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. Oh yes, in November. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, um, I try and do that every year when I have like free time, which is, you know, three times the last 20 years. <laughs> um, purely because even if I don't get anything uh, usable out of it as a story, the uh, I generally find that basically I'll, I'll cope with ideas I like. Like I, I wrote a thirty thousand word um, start of a novel back in like two thousand and five or something, and that never went anywhere in itself. But I used bits of it in like many many different adventures and monster manuals and whatever, just because I I like thrown out so many random ideas my subconscious that it was a good source. So I tried that again. And I wrote the first 20,000 words of The Gutter Prayer or so. Uh, maybe more, maybe 30, 30, 40. And stopped and moved on to a different attempt at a novel. So I wanted to try doing a novel. I'd done so many role things about to see if I could work in a different style and write something that, that like you know, non-role players could understand. Um, and then my wife wisely said, like, you know, instead of starting a different book, why don't you actually finish that one? <laughs> so I com- complained and said, no, 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 it's terrible. But sat down and finished the prayer. And 
then I sent it into a couple of open calls for novels, and it got it got it did okay. Like it, it reached the it wasn't immediately rejected, but didn't get published there. And I was going to self publish it, and then a friend of mine, Richard Ford, who was an editor at Mongoose back in the day and has since become a novelist, said, "Oh, my agent John Gerald is looking for is always open to submissions. Send it into him." Um, so I sent it into. Uh, John, expecting nothing to come, but expecting that I would like you know, kickstart it and um, self-publish. I was talking to Greg Stolzi about like you know options for doing novels and so forth through self-publishing, and John Gerald said, "No, I like it." Um, and John is this like you know he's like an you know, ancient doyen of the British sci-fi scene. He's like you know, he's been around for ages. He like you know knows everyone. He was, I think he was the first person to publish. Um, Robert Jordan or someone, he's like, he's like, you know, very, very, very well established. And it was like, you're terribly, terribly English fellow. <laughs> and uh, and uh, within a few weeks, he had uh, landed at his orbit. And I remember um, being inside watching Thor Ragnarok in the cinema and getting texts on my phone and running up the bathroom and like, yo, him going, I think we can get some more. I'll, I'll talk to them again. And <laughs> And then we were back to the bathroom, like Terence, going, "You should take this offer. It's a very good offer." It's excellent. And that, then suddenly, I, I had a novel deal, so, which was uh, very, very gratifying, I must say. Brilliant, and it is uh, it, the um, city of Gurdon is uh, very arresting. And I think we've all pointed out in our discussions this morning that it's a quite a striking uh, prologue, uh, this idea that um, the city has uh, some sort of sentience. Um, I suppose uh, that is a familiar idea from Eyes of the, uh, uh, the Stone Thief as well, isn't it? This idea that uh, the, the city and architecture has a mind of its own. Yeah, I, I seem to be a, very, very drawn to sort of sentient architecture and like, you know, evil places. Uh, also, the, the, as people pointed out, uh, the prologue is in the second person present tense, which is a weird way to write a novel, but it's exactly how you run a game. Like, mm. you, it, it starts out like, you know, you are standing on a rise over the city. A very pretentious way to start a novel. And went like, through the book at me going, you wanker, what are you doing? Uh, but it is exactly how one would run a game. Um, so I think I, I, I was very, very nervous and feeling like I was trespassing into someone else's territory when I started writing prose. So. I sort of started with something comfortable and familiar to myself. And uh, the other um, element of the uh, novel that uh, stands out are the uh, three central characters. So um, talk about how um, uh, those came about. So the idea of a spa, ghoul and uh, Carrie. Who did you start um, with? Starting with Carrie. Um, I tried doing novels before a couple of times and I always found the same problem where I was so used to writing role-playing campaigns and so forth that I would set up this like you know interesting setting, no problem. Interesting plot, yep, do that. Protagonist characters, well, that's the player's problem. Like you know, the, 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 I was sitting there waiting for my main characters to show up and do something, and because there were no players there to like you know to drive the story, nothing happened. So I wrote like you know two or three, or started two or three novels where interesting setup, and then just stops. So Carrie, I basically came up with a protagonist who was so impulsive and hair trigger that if something happened, she would react and do stuff instantly, even if that was absolutely the wrong thing to do or utterly stupid. She would like sort of leap in feet first to any situation. 
And that sort of kicked off the story and that like, she started reacting to stuff and things started happening. Perfect player. And exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then once you have a sort of like, you know, impulsive, um, quick-to-act character, so you want sort of contrast and so as a fault that. So you have someone who is, by their nature, like, you know, slow and thoughtful. Um, I'm not quite sure where the, where, the, where the aspect of him being diseased came from. Partially, it was back that I'd blown my back out a few months before writing it. So it was like, you know, in a mindset where moving was hard. I, think <laughs> I was taking like, you know, painkillers every day and something of that sort of filtered the novel. That's where Spark came from. And again, I think I was a bit ner- sort of nervous starting off. So I sort of reached familiar tropes and I've been doing Lovecraftian stuff for many, many years. So I mean, I, I can like, you know, riff on ghouls until the cows come home and get eaten. So that's where that came from. And the thing is, once I had a group of protagonists who were doing stuff, then I was able to like, you know, bring in all my um, long, sharp and jamming, jamming skills and I like, came up with like, you know, people for them to interact with and like st- uh, situations for them to get into. But once they were moving, it was a lot easier. It was that sort of initial shove I needed to, to get the story going. What we wanted to ask about as well is uh, the process of uh, writing these uh, novels. So, do, what tools do you use? And uh, the way the way that I've been asked to ask it is: Are you uh, a plotter or a pantser? Have you heard of that before? So, are you flying on the seat of your pants? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I kind of fall between the two stools. What I've what works for me so far, um, well, I'm trying to change to be more more plotty for efficiency's sake, is I write, like, you know, in the Gutter Prayer, I wrote, like, the first, like, 20,000 or so words. Then Sir sat down and write, what's going on? Where is the story going? Wrote an outline for the next the story. Wrote another 20,000 words. Stopped again, did another outline. And sort of, sort of plotted, it's like running a campaign where you're plotting the next session. You're not plotting the whole campaign advance, but, like, you know, the players go home and you go, okay, they're they're coming to the city next round uh, or next next week. I'll write to the city and stuff that happens there. But what's beyond the city, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I, um, it's actually quite similar to how Tolkien did it because the, the deep dive on um, the, the history of Middle Earth books and how, how he wrote Lord of the Rings, and he also like you know did the whole thing where he like you know write a bit, outline the next bit, write a bit out for the next bit. In terms of tools, I started using Scrivener, which is this word processor designed for doing novels and so forth. And that's purely because it's not Word. Um, all my role-playing stuff I do in Word, so I wanted like you know, a slightly different space for, for fiction to get myself in a different mindset. Um, and I, I, it's worked so well that I cannot use Scrivener for anything other than fiction. I cannot even start fiction in Word. Well, that's interesting. Just to, just so that you, you can shift between uh, two different hats. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think, handy to have the two, two different hats and like, you know, sort of keep the approaches different because while there's a lot of crossover between the two in terms of techniques and so forth, there are different assumptions you've got to make and like I, I need to make the novel assumptions when doing a novel. What I was going to ask is how do you keep track of all the different elements in, in the novel? Is that a similar process to how you keep track of uh, games? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do it in, in what I'm sure is a very, very stupid way where I keep most of it in my head <laughs> and every so often I will write down, write down incomprehensible lists that I will lose again but the act of writing them down reminds me of stuff um, but I'm pretty good at like 
uploading a vast amount of information to my head, hold it there for a while, and then lose it again. Like, if you ask me about the Dracula dossier or Eyes of the Stone Thief or Pirates of Dronax, I will remember two or three bits right now. But when I was in the middle of writing them, I would have every single character, every uh. single... So like, when, I, when, I, when I start like a new novel in the series, I would have to read the previous ones again and sort of re-upload all that data. I should really like you know work on a way of, of capturing it more efficiently, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works. Absolutely, and inevitably, um, as uh, as gamers, we start asking the questions around how how is uh, this series going to play into gaming? Uh, do you have any intention, or is any interest in adapting it into a game? I kept the rights. Firstly, the ones are changed into a contract. I said, like you know. <laughs> I will retain the rule play rights, so we won't like you them off if anyone asks. Um, so I don't. I want to do it at some point. Um, I'll finish the series first, or at least get it to a, 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 a like a reasonable stopping point, and then I don't know. I, I, I'll definitely do something with it, even if it's just a like a, a five, a, like a brief five E supplement with like the monsters and the city guide. I don't know. I, I, I've I've had vague conversations with like you know various friendly publishers, but there's nothing at all definite yet but yeah it, 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 it sort of has to happen as an inevitability <laughs> and that's um part of the world building uh, is the monster creation that's uh, another element of the novel that's uh, uh, striking isn't it um the uh, tallow men for example and the crawling uh, creatures and uh, it, you know a great book and um, one of the things that uh, i really liked about it was this idea that uh, the gods were manifest from spells that had taken on a life of their own there's lots of uh, great ideas in, in here that you could definitely use for gaming Oh, yeah, I mean, half the ideas are like your know, gaming ideas. I had, I went, hmm, I, like, you know, this would be, like you know, this will never play out in a game or as life play out in a game, but I can like you know, expand on it here because in a game you often sort of throw away ideas that will like you know never never get used properly um, because the players have like moved on to the next encounter or whatever. But when you're doing a novel, you can sort of like you know, sort of sit with them a bit and think about ramifications. Well, what I'd like to do now, uh, Guy, if that's all right, is to introduce um, the members of the book club who have got some uh, questions for you. So uh, I'm going to invite uh, Abs uh, to ask his question about um, the difference of approach. Hi, Abs. Hi, Gareth. Um, I just had a a question um, about the process, in particular, maybe the editing process. Um, Like when you're working with a big publisher, uh, like Orbit has um, how did you find that? How is it different to the process when you're working with games publishers? I mean, a lot of gaming stuff, there's, the editing is fairly minimal. In some cases, non-existent. In other cases, it's it's there, but they won't ever really dig that. Because the structure of role-playing game is so sort of conditional, like, you know, this might happen, this might happen, this might happen. So you're like, you know, your sort of surface level exploration of various possibilities. I even upload GM. The editor really can't change that much because there's not much there to dig into. Whereas the novel, like, the question they ask over and over again, like, you know, how does this make the character feel? How do they like, you know, expand on their feelings at this moment, expand on their like, reaction at this moment? Um, the other thing is the astounding difference in this time frame. Like, you know, I've ju- I just handed in a novel there yesterday, um, or the, the edits to a novel, and that novel hasn't even been announced yet. It's due for publication in like March 
of next year, I think, is the current date. It will now go off to a proofreader. It'll go off to like a new editors. I'll get proofs back in a few months. Whereas the role-playing game, the turnaround is generally far, far quicker. Like, um, I mean, obviously, Mongoose was an exception in terms of their turnaround date, where basically books went from conception to publication in like six months or so. But like for most role-playing games, like I, I'll hand it a manuscript. There'll be like a month or so of editing and stuff, and then it's off to layout. Whereas novels, everything is a year in advance. Did you enjoy the the editing process? Was there a lot of back and forth, or was it um, was it quite sort of um, compartmentalized? No, there was there was there was some back and forth. There was a lot of conversations in like you know the comments and word docs. I enjoyed it once I got used to it. There, because we're in the same degree of editing in role playing games, I was, I, my first reaction was, "Oh God!" Like you, know, I've messed this up completely because you get you handed back this like you know manuscript covered in red lines. I think because of the way I sort of came up in role playing games, I never really got any heavy initial edits because I started off doing very very small new twenty things and then sort of meandered into a full time position without ever, ever really being being challenged in that way. So it wasn't used to that level of feedback. Hmm. But once you realize that the editor is there trying to improve the book and also they're generally right, um, partly because they've so much experience, but also because like at that point, I've been writing the book for a year. I was so close to it, I couldn't sort of see the structure of it. Whereas they're able to sort of step back and see the whole thing from start to finish and go, you know, this, this whole like, you know, section here is utterly irrelevant. Cut all that. Basically drops off here and here and here. Um, but you've skimmed over this bit in far, far too little detail. You need to expand on that. Um, so it, it was a, a good process, and also what you see is I sort of be able to take some of that advice and put it into role playing games then as well. I, I find myself now asking a lot more, like you know, how does the player, how will the players feel at this point? How can I like you know bring about emotion and so forth, as opposed to just concentrating on this with the tactical or mystery aspects of the scene. Excellent. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Abs. Uh, and uh, next, we've got a, a question from uh, Ed Foster, who is a regular uh, facilitator at tables here at the book club. Thank you very much. This is a really fascinating conversation. So I think one thing that struck, struck, struck me in particular was that one of the most striking elements of the novel is the way that the gods are the kind of the drivers forward, and particularly the Grana Valley interlude. It's not a very happy picture of divinity, and I'm just really struck by You've, you've met it feels a very modern sensibility, but could you talk a bit around that the gods as drivers for this novel? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do in both fiction and role play games is sort of take a fantastical idea and treat it with like you know, as much seriousness as I could or as I can. So, with like the gods, the good prayer, it's like, you know, okay, if you take sort of like, you know, a sort of like, you know, mythological conception of God, like, you know, like justice, and justice is not this abstract concept there is a guy who embodies justice yeah. there is this like justice has a force and a personality and opinions and uh, associated regalia how would that warp the world and my conclusion was that it would be very very frightening because you basically have <laughs> these obsessive cosmic forces deforming reality and we'd be sort of like they're trying to Live in the shadows of them. Um, part of it as well. I mean, like I said like you know, the God of Prayer didn't have what's sort of one single old conception, but one chunk of it was wandering around Tesco one day, worrying about global warming and just in time supply chains. 
and the sort of feeling that like you know we're all living in the shadow of these terrible invisible forces that control our reality and that if one of them like you know snaps or changes everything would like you know change in a moment and everyone's like walking around unaware of this yeah and being a giant nerd i went right instead of like you know actually writing about serious stuff i'll take that feeling of existential dread and stick a funny hat on it and give it like you know a magic sword <laughs> i do like that tesco spiders to kaiju in one one easy step <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you, you sort of train yourself to have odd thoughts when you're doing role playing games. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. And um, uh, the next question is from uh, Chris, Chris Webb. Um, just something about uh, the ideas uh, that you, you generate. I invite again, Chris. Um, thank you. Hi, hi Gareth. Uh, thanks yeah. so much for doing this with us. So, um, I'm, I guess, so the question really is how brave do you feel you need to be? Uh, with the way you treat ideas and it's it's I guess really the context for this is that I think I I, I tend to, to hold on to an idea and stretch it a bit thin whereas the book is just absolutely awash with ideas um, and it, I'm just astonished by this sort of massive sprawl of ideas so I just wanted to ask you about that and if I can. Um, I, arguably I was sort of too brave because like one complaint that people have made is that it basically is this fire hose of concepts and I don't sort of sit there and develop them sufficiently, which is a purpose to level of criticism. And I don't know where, where the right balance point is. I think it, it'll change for each story. I think a lot is basically just, can you make the reader feel comfortable and confident in their understanding of what's going on? And like, you know, can they like, you know, reasonably understand the story? But then again, I mean, there are other books which do, far far braver stuff than i ever dreamed of like i was reading um oh what's her name new zealand author gideon the ninth and harrow the ninth they're these books about these like you know far future necromancers um and the harrow in particular is this absolute like you know collision of different genres and approaches there the main character is going mad there's, there's like you know, it's like one chapter is done entirely as a coffee shop alternate universe. It is this sort of absolutely like a you know, stream of bizarre ideas, and I was really going. I could never ever write this because it would. Thanks, Hans and Muir. Thank you, um, the author. I would never ever be able to write this. I would never approach things this way. So I don't think there's a sort of right answer in how ambitious to get with your ideas. Uh, some readers will just like you know latch on and resonate. Uh, some will bounce off completely, and really the question is: do you get, Are you lucky enough to find a? Is there, in terms of publication, are you lucky enough to find like a, an agent, an editor who resonate with that? Are you lucky enough to find readers who resonate with that? It is absolutely crapshoot. There's no right answer, I think. Well, thank you very much. I, it just, for me, the book was a bit like you described Tens of Muir's book. It was just like, where are we going next? And wow, hang on, it's, it's great fun. So thank you. Yeah. But was, so, some readers will, will, will hang on, others will sort of like, you know, let go and fall back and go, right, I have no idea what that was about, off it goes. Next up, uh, I've got uh, Tristan, uh, from, uh, who's calling in from Japan, and uh, oh. we, on our table, uh, Tristan's on our table, we were discussing uh, Gurdon as a character within the city, within um, uh, the, the, the novel, and uh, Tristan came up with this idea of reverse psychogeography, and he's got uh, a question about <laughs> the city. <laughs> Hi, um, Gareth. Um, thanks for um, discussing your book and gaming with us. 
Um, the question really was about um, the fictional influences of Gurdon and um, your, your ambitions regarding um, fiction as opposed to game writing in that respect. So we, we had hints of um, Ankh-Morpork, um, Ankh-Morpork, uh, Fritz Lieber's World and uh, China Mievel's London, among other things, uh, in the discussion. I'm just wondering uh, where you see yourself in in uh, in the literary canon of fantasy literature, as it were. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I see myself in. Actually, I, 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 I don't know if one can see oneself in literary canon. I think that's like you know very much a question for the audience and critics. Uh, I, I don't think you can sort of like say I am going to. Like you know, be mentioned in the same breath as X, Y, or Z. I mean, certainly, China Mievel was a huge influence um, on Gurdon. So was um, M. John Harrison's Briconium, um, Max Gladstone's Craft Books, and Robert Jackson's um, uh, Cities Books, Divine Cities. Um, in terms of real world influences, Gurdon's geography is Cork, where I live. And it's like architecture is mostly Edinburgh. Um, and so it started off actually. I, I, I had a notebook where I was basically writing out interesting ideas for places in the city, just like names and like you know. I, I had vague intentions of doing a sort of water deep esque city setting, which never came to anything but like bits of that filtered into the book. And this is, again, possibly sort of gaming influence. I, 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 I like place. I, I like feeling that the characters are situated in a particular location. Um, and I'm good, I think, at visualizing like different bits of location and how they interact and how we can get from A to B within a place. Because I'm you know, a career staring at maps and two dungeon crawls. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I can analyze the the influences and the logistics of writing a city, but in terms of its, how it impacts on the reader and how it, what what sort of place it has in in the greater sort of fictional um, canon and so forth, I, I, I really couldn't answer because uh, I have well, I terrible sp- good, good. I suppose the corollary really is um, how how is it uh, how is game writing and fiction writing um, different in a really big way? And we did have one one um, member who guessed Edinburgh was a big influence, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> Well, I mean, game writing is ultimately super functional. Um, whatever else you're doing, it has to give advice to the GM on how to present a, a interesting plot, interesting situations to the players. You can be as detailed, as poetic, as lovely as you want in your writing, but you are still ultimately writing a technical manual which has a purpose. Uh, and as, as, as I've done with game writing, I mean, uh, I love game writing. It's where, where, where I tend to remain, but there's always the back of your mind the the, the fact that this book has a purpose. You're trying to achieve a particular technical goal. Whereas with um, novel writing, where your your goal there is to entertain the reader, uh, which is a much more sort of nebulous approach, given our approach goal, because there are many ways, many ways to do that. You you don't need to tell the reader. You need to tell the GM what's going on, how A gets to B, what B means, what, like, you know, what, what the various motivations of people are. 
when, you, when you've got to one reader there, as long as you keep their attention, as long as you keep, their, keep them entertained, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And so whatever you want becomes much more about provoking emotional reaction or creating a particular atmosphere with the, with the, with the prose. So it's, it's a mindset of get of like you know moving from working with the GM and giving them the advice and support and information they need to trying to create this emotional or aesthetic effect in the reader. Um, it's a very pretentious way of putting it, but it, it is like the, the shift in mindset that, that, that's needed. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks, Thank Tristan. You. Thank you. And one of the observations, uh, it was Pookie that made, was that the um, it has a very distinctive uh, pacing, the uh, book. So there's got long chapters at the beginning and then towards the end it um, breaks into a, a quicker pace, shorter um, bursts. Uh, was that was that also conscious? And uh, what was you thinking around that? I'd say se- semi-conscious is probably the best way to put it. In the, as, as, uh, as I said, my approach was write a bit, then go back and re-outline, edit a bit, and like, you know, work out basically what I had done and where it was going. Partly the sort of quick pace of the last chapters is just me going, oh, dear God, this is like, you know, 180,000 <laughs> words long. And I've been told like you know, it's, it's hard to uh, publish anything longer than 150,000 words. So like, you know, quick finish and finish and finish it. Yeah. And also early on, I know that I really enjoy basically slipping into source book writing mode and having characters go up on long digressions about yes. uh, history and background and so forth, which my editors always say, like, you know, cut this. And then they're going, no, this is what I like. This is like a really fun <laughs> part. Um, there's a fantastic book, which I always plug, called Wonder Book by Jeff Vandermeer, which is this guide to writing fiction, but it's done for chunks from all different writers in there. And there's a sidebar from Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, the Mars books, which have always taken a sort of a, a totemic touchstone. Where Kim Sarah Robinson goes, basically goes, you know, people will tell you, like, you know, cut exposition and cut, like, you know, everything else, like, you know, move the plot forward. Nonsense. If your exposition is fun and you're yeah. enjoying it, and you make the reader enjoy it, then you can get away with it. Yeah. Which is how he justifies, like, you know, 30 pages on, like, you know, Martian soil chemistry because it's really, really interesting. <laughs> he makes it interesting. And similarly, I sort of, you know, will fight for my five-page digressions about the like, you know, underworld architecture of the city because A, I find that interesting and I hope I, find, I can make the reader interested as well. And also, and I'm, this is a, again, a, sort of a role-playing stick I've picked up. I'm good at embedding stuff that will pay off later on. Yes. In like yeah. those descriptions. So, like, you know, so uh, there's the very, I, 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 I rarely waste a description. Like I, I'm always good at like, sort of sticking clues in and like you know, foreshadowing and so forth. Which I think is a sort of GMing tool because when you're GMing, if you describe something, it's easy to make that relevant later on. Uh, here, I, I with throws, I can sort of like you know, like I, I can like apply the same trick and like you know, go, oh, I mentioned that like you know, the city is built on pillars fifty pages ago. Aha! Now I stick, now I stick bombs onto the pillars. The bag is going to like blow up the pillars and collapse the city. Oh, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I am retrospectively a genius. <laughs> I've got. Uh... Brinley would like to ask a question about pacing as well, so I invite him, Brinley. Hi, Gareth. Hey. Um, our group this morning, when we were talking about this, it was, it, we were struck by how fast-paced uh, the the book is. Very cinematic, very Marvel-esque, we thought, um, which led us to then 
uh, dream about how how you would think about uh, adapting your series. You know, um, the first thing that came to mind for us was uh, a graphic novel. We thought it would be really suitable for that type um, of format. But I guess what other kind of mediums do you think um, it would be suited to? I honestly don't know. Um, I, I know role-playing games and I'm sorry, learning novels. I don't have the technical insight into other styles of things to do really understand how, how it would be done. Like I can see in my head, like, you know, the Netflix adaptation. Or <laughs> I can I, and I can see and I can see how, how parts of work as a graphic novel, although it would be hard. A, a lot of the gutter especially is very internal because I took the sort of semi shortcut of having a character who has lots of like you know psychic visions. So she can like you know, have chunks of the plot dumped in her into her head, which was yeah. a very <laughs> very in retrospect, a very, very easy out for me. Um, but I'm not sure how one would con- convey that sort of interiority or internal experience in, in a graphic novel, but I'm, I'm sure there are ways to do it. But, um, and I would love to see like, you know, what someone would do with the, with the architecture. Because I, 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 love, I love architecture and describing cities, but you can only talk about crenellations and flying buttresses <laughs> and spires in prose for so long. <laughs> Before the reader starts throwing things at you, whereas if someone was doing like the cubits of art that have been done, like you know, have great fun doing broke architecture and so forth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the other like you know, cynical thing is like you know, if if I want to adapt just like the rights are out there, so <laughs> I would happily take their money if someone wants to do, like you know, <laughs> go in the scented per- the scented the scented perfume or something. <laughs> go ahead and Actually, do theme tar- park. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that, that would work better than perfume because, given so much the book is set in sewers, it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essence of rat. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Brindley. Uh, I've got uh, a question as well from uh, uh, Steph, who uh, he's uh, he's a member of the Geo Fan Club, and uh, he was quite devastated this morning. So I'm going to invite in uh, Steph. Uh, yeah. Hi, uh, Gareth. Thanks for um, giving us the talk. Um, the the characters obviously there's there's obviously the main characters but there's also supporting yeah. cast as well one of them being Jer and one yeah. of the common themes when we have in our discussion in our little group was that um we were all saddened and uh, distressed that Jer didn't quite make it uh, we we thought maybe he would be part of your trilogy of five books and be one of these characters that goes all all, all the way through um so I'm just wondering obviously you've discussed how you have your fire hose kind yeah. of ideas and then yeah. you were going back and rewriting parts of the book and after the 20 20- thousand words etc um so yeah. was the vulnerability of the characters and in particular Jer um set beforehand and is there a version of the book where Jer actually makes it and is uh, survives and is the hero at the end <laughs> i don't think i've read a book where he read any version where he would have been like critical at the end given it's so given so much about carrie and her connection to black iron gods and so forth um that's a, his death was a bit of a surprise um I was writing it and suddenly, oh, I just killed him. Do I want to do that? Yes, I do. But it, it, it was a bit, a bit like so the moment to role play game where you, you know, you, you, your monster rules critical hit and the player character just falls over dead. They're like, uh, yeah, let that stand. Um, that said, I'm, there are so many ways for people to come back that he, um, that he, he may be showing up again in book four. 
There's, there's uh, lots of pleased, pleased people on this call now yeah. who, are, who are looking forward to that book. But also, well, the issue with Jir was that his, from the start, his big thing was basically him hunting the crime boss, Heinroyal, and once that plot was resolved, most of it resolved in the first book, so he didn't have quite as much of a need to hang around for later ones as other characters. But could you start complaining stuff there? Because like, you know, I have, like, I, at this point, now I have a plan for where the series will go. But when I was read The Gutter Prayer, I didn't, and his death was more of a surprise. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and also, yeah, I, I wanted to have a bit more vulnerability because I was, I, I, I did feel like that, that for the stakes to be raised, someone had to be killed off or at least be horribly maimed. Uh, next, we've got a, a question from uh, Dave Patterson, who describes himself as somebody who's been Pelgrim press ganged at a convention and ended up spending wow. lots and lots of money. Uh, uh, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks to your intervention. So I just invite Dave in to ask a question. Enjoy uh, the Pelgrim four for three deal. I, I think it was something like twelve for the price of five, or something. I don't know. <laughs> twelve for nine is an excellent deal. With reference to sort of criticism, and uh, we were wondering yep. how uh, how does that sort of very personal process of writing a book on your own differ from having written collaboratively on a role playing game in the concept in, in the context of criticism? Do you do you take it better? Can you deflect it to other people in role playing or? How do you think they fit, They differ? Well, I mean, partly in a role-playing game, again, because it's so functional, if someone is criticising it, there is generally a, a just for the reason behind it. Like, you know, if someone says, oh, like, you know, these monsters are too, are too weak in this encounter or this bit of the plot doesn't work, you can sort of sit there and go, okay, are those monsters too weak? And you go, yeah, they, 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 they should be pumped up a bit or Okay, I think that that like particular plot connection works, but I can see how if a group misses like you know the matchbox in the corner, I can see how the connection to the nightclub with the Cthulhu monsters isn't as clear. With a novel, yeah, the criticism de- does tend to be more sort of like you know you're you're not liking it. Um, um, how supposed to phrase this? Like you, you had a, the the effect you were going for, and it didn't resonate with someone. What I found, the biggest difference I found really, though, was with role-playing criticism, it's okay for the writer to respond and give suggestions. Like, you know, if someone says, oh, like, I can't run the Dracula dossier for my group because they will never sit down and read a, like, you know, 400-page handout, I can't use this book. Like, you know, yeah, that's a perfectly fair thing to say. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I have my standard spiel of, oh, you can, like, you know, here are ways to introduce it meaningfully, here are ways to, or simply here are ways to chop it up. Like you, know, you give them a version with like you know, post it's in the middle, pointing at key clues, or you give them a chapter by chapter because there it's been decoded or something. So basically, because it it is like a technical problem to be solved, I can give solutions to that problem. Whereas with a novel, the culture is the re- the author does not respond to reviews. It is like you know a, a very huge huge full path to if a reader says, "Oh, I couldn't follow this plot," you can't go. Well, you know, I'll, I'll explain the plot to you in the comments and review. <laughs> You cannot do that, and I've been told to not even attempt to do that. So yeah, you, there's a, there's a bit of a bigger divide. Like you know, role playing writers tend to be like because role gamers, we tend to be like fairly approachable and like you know you can ping someone, ask a question or whatever. Whereas novelists have to maintain a little bit more of a distance from the fans, which is one of the sort of the cultural things I've 
picked up on. Like they can still like chat away and so forth, but more level of like higher level guard than it's expected. But that could be me just coming coming from things from, from an odd local subculture. I suppose it's um, mm, uh, in the mainstream as well, isn't it? So your your criticism is probably reaching uh, different audiences that because um, more it's more exposed, isn't it? And in uh, mainstream yeah. publications, yeah, I mean, to a huge degree, the the market is like more the magnitude bigger. So like you you don't, I, I still don't know how many people have read it, and like if a review, and if a review comes, like you. Know, if like, there are like you know what like four or five role playing game reviewers of note, my puppy. Um, whereas with novels, like you know, you get a review from someone on like Tumblr or something, and you don't know if that person is like you know a randomer with like five followers, or this like you know book expert with like you know twenty five million followers who will make or break your career in, in an instant. <laughs> it's just a, it's a, a whole a, a far larger and stranger world. Do you take that criticism sort of more personally for the book, or your uh, own reaction to it? What I found is like, there there are some reviews which you, you sort of just, just dismiss out of hand. Like it's someone who like you know should not, not, not they shouldn't have read the book, but like you know that book, the book is absolutely at odds with their particular interests or aesthetics. And they just they, they were never going to enjoy it. Um, other reviews have like more more valid criticism. Like you know, I I know where my weaknesses as an author are, and I'm trying trying to improve on them. So I won't take that review personally. I'll sort of like add it to a mental database of like you know, here are the, the five most common criticisms about the book. Here's stuff you want to work on next time. So like you know, you need to like you know, I need to do better writing characters. I need to. Uh, slow down the plot at times, and I'll try not to take it personally because like they're reading a a book I wrote like at this point like five years ago, and I know I've changed as a writer and as a person. And also, when you when you read a book, there basically there's there's two people involved. There's the, there's the reader, and the, there's the author and the reader, and the experience of reading the book is going to be a combination of their experience as well as what you've written. So you can only provide sort of half the input to their experience. So you can't take it personally because you don't know where they're coming from or what their particular biases and experiences and uh, interests are. As in, sometimes you're lucky and it sort of resonates with the, with the reader, but you can't, it doesn't always. So you, you, you can't, you can write a perfectly good book and have it fall on stony soil, so to speak. And thanks to everyone uh, for asking the questions. We nearly running out of time, but uh, there was one question that came up, uh, guys, that I'd like to see. What have you got against seagulls? They're weird. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 maybe it's like something like your childhood trauma of um, like you're having chips stolen at the seaside or something. They're just like they're very, very starey eyes or very like frantic eyes. Not quite like sort of flying rats, but it's like you know, sort of flying piranha or something. I don't know. They're, they're, there's odd, and they're, they're odd and they're everywhere. They're very loud. To be say more serious, a lot of writing is taking these things that have an emotional charge for you and trying to convey that emotional charge to someone else because the unexpectedness, strangeness of imposing or having someone else's experience imposed on your own worldview is like you know uh, an interesting way to create an emotional effect like you know if I feel that's a, 
I don't feel that strongly about seagulls, but I feel I've a, a great a, a apparently a non-standard emotional reaction to the seagulls. So if I push that out of the reader, that will spark a new thought in the reader and, and have a feeling of sort of novelty and strangeness, which is the the emotional effect I'm going for in the books generally. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gareth, uh, for spending some time with us uh, this morning at the book club. And uh, I hope that you and your family get well soon uh, from COVID. No, we're, we're, we're mostly recovered. Um, soon, soon we'll have a house and everything will back to normal and I can get back on deadlines. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to seeing whatever uh, you comes from your desk over the next uh, few years. So thank you very much. And just ask everyone just to give a, a, a round of applause. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Th- thank you all very much. Uh, having people read the book is, is a joy. It's like, you know, not honestly, I, I ever expected when I was writing it. I wrote it very much as sort of a, as a project myself. It's been wonderful that it has sort of made its way out to the world and been received and spread out. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gareth. See Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you'd like to join the book club, then please contact me via dirtthedice at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Grognard File. It's managed through the book club's app. Or alternatively, watch out for updates on the Discord channel. I hope you enjoyed this, and thanks to all the people who have been part of the book club over the past year. It's really been a highlight of my gaming month. Thanks. Until the next episode, which is coming soon, adios amigos.